0: Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective, and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we wanna say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener supported. So your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, And see you all in the new year.
1: To the death panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism or pre-order Jules's new book coming January from Verso called A Short History of Trans Misogyny or request them both at your local library and follow us at death panel underscore. So today I'm here with my co-hosts Artie Verkamp hello, and Abby Cardis. Hello. And we're going to be dipping into clown world and talking about (laughs) (laughs) this really awful opinion piece published in the British Medical Journal of Evidence-Based Medicine, co-authored by some of our familiar COVID adversaries. The piece is called How Methodological Pitfalls Have Created Widespread Misunderstanding About Long COVID. It's by... Tracy Beth Hogue, Shamez Ladhani, and Vinay Prasad. And it argues that existing epidemiological research on long COVID has created basically a too-large definition of what a genuine case of long COVID is. And so these three allege in their op-ed that this has led to a distortion of risk, where too many people are now at risk of believing that they're sick when they aren't quite sick enough, in their <laughs> opinion. So this is not a super surprising position coming from these folks. We have talked about Prasad at length on this show. He, yeah, like um, from
0: the guy who brought you do not test anymore for COVID and the idea that the COVID vaccines are part of, quote, a universal campaign to medicalize all of
2: society. Is Pfizer making more money from the people they're saving or are they making the bulk of their revenue from their universal campaign to medicalize all of society comes this new
1: (laughs) yes unsurprising
2: take yeah (laughs) if
1: you liked his past hits uh you'll love yeah no i'm joking so prasad for those who don't know though um he's a hematology oncologist um known for his substack a uh, bad podcast and pandemic minimizing and, you know, being a big fanboy and participant in what is called the evidence-based medicine movement, which is not the kind of good thing necessarily that it sounds like at face value. Um, now, the other two co-authors, uh, one is Tracy Beth Hoag, who calls herself a physician scientist and a parent advocate. And she's best mm-hmm. known probably for her, um, <laughs> yeah, her involvement in reproducing the narrative that COVID is really no big deal for children. Um, that we should definitely actually send those kids back to school, get them infected. It's part of how they build their immune system. You know, she's one of the co-authors and co-leaders of the urgency of normal document and crew. And the third co-author, Shemez Ladhani, who is a UK-based pediatrician and epidemiologist, he's well known for writing and doing knowledge production that argues that masking children is either useless or dangerous. It depends on the piece, basically, or I guess on his mood. He's also, uh, in the last year, really focused his attention on, you know, reducing the amount of COVID vaccinations that kids are getting. Um, His advocacy has really been focused on the idea that vaccination will not prevent long COVID, ergo, there is no point to vaccination um, for children. So, basically. These are some of our, you know, rogues gallery of COVID mitigation haters who, you know, have come together to put together this op-ed and argue that we really 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 need to put up these firm and hard boundaries around the category of long COVID.
0: And I think it also goes a little bit deeper than that because I think when we first saw this paper in a way, you know, my first reaction to this which has gone around a lot, I think a lot of people have critiqued it, quite a lot of people also have just uncritically regurgitated it, particularly like in the UK press, actually this like really went around. And of course this gets reproduced as like study says X, right? Like study says, even though it's not a study, it's an opinion Mm -hmm, piece. mm -hmm. Uh, Study says, you know, prevalence of long COVID is uh, overstated. (laughs) And it's just kind of this thing that people therefore are too worried about. Um, We should stop worrying about it quite as much, et cetera, et cetera, And, you know, I think, I, th- I think the reason that we wanted to talk about this in particular, not only because as B is mentioning, it's kind of like a perfect overlap of these like clown world figures like Prasad, who we talk about relatively frequently, though we, I think, try to talk about them as little as possible, because for us, the pandemic is not about individual personalities, it's about kind of the overall, you know, schema or, or whatever. But I think for us, this sort of paper, this kind of opinion of theirs captures, I think, what has been one of our main concerns with how the medical professions under capitalism may respond to long COVID over the long term, basically, which is to say, as we'll talk about over the course of this episode, talking about this paper, deciding we need to, you know, severely limit who does and does not qualify or or whatever, we need to be like very seriously from the very beginning rationing resources and kind of drawing these lines between who is a verifiable or deserving, non-deserving uh, long COVID subject to the point of even suggesting that we should, you know, sort of do away with this term uh, mm-hmm, long COVID. Mm-hmm. Like they suggest very plainly in the paper, we should, you know, do away with long COVID as a term so that people are not identifying with it, Mm -hmm. essentially.
1: And as we'll get into, for a paper that is centralized around the theme of the limitations with existing methodologies, there are a lot of methodology problems within their own argument. And they are making all these claims, again, about methodology itself, partially, I think, because it is, you know, both you know their regime of expertise but also because it makes it harder to parse where they're actually coming from but yeah. abby yes abby will help elucidate that and articulate those nuances as we go through it um but first I think we need to stop and take stock of what this is and what this is trying to do. You know, as uh, already said, this is an op-ed, but is, as it's been passed around, it's been treated as something that is much more uh, like rigorous yeah. or, yeah. or uh, full of evidence than it actually is, which is worth noting, like right from the top. And it's been referred to not just as this thing that it isn't, but as a study that invalidates prior long COVID research, which is really yeah. important. So this is not only being overblown, and it's being claimed that this also supersedes and invalidates prior understanding and research on long COVID prevalence, on what long COVID is. And it also, you know, is being treated as fact and given the kind of deference and respect that a personal account um, that embodied expertise of long COVID, your own fucking experience of long COVID will never ever receive. And I know that is so fucking frustrating. So I just for all those folks who are listening, who are experiencing long COVID, who have been living through long COVID, I just wanted to name how infuriating it is to hear these motherfuckers talk about this shit this way.
3: I want to say something additional about what this document actually is, Mm -hmm. because, you know, it is it is an op ed but it's classified if you go to the BMJ. Now the BMJ is fucking responsible for this because I don't know how this shit made it through peer review to begin with, (laughs) let alone as being what it is classified as. So there are typically different like types of articles or things that get published in scientific journals. Like there are commentaries, which are basically like op-eds. And then there are like analyses, which are typically, you know, like data analyses or some some type of like experimental study finding of some kind. And this thing is classified as an analysis, but it is not that. It has no results, you know, like the authors did no analysis. They consulted no data. And not only is it not an analysis, it's not even like there are two types of sort of like scientific paper that like summarize a body of literature. Mm -hmm. Um, There is what's called like a meta-analysis where you're summarizing a body of literature and like doing math on it. Basically, you know, it's kind of like very formal. And you might like try to pool the data or like, try to calculate uh, or harmonize all of the um, the results across different studies. But this is certainly not that. And then there's like a, a more qualitative version of that that's like typically called like a systematic review or something like that. And even that is pretty rigorous. You know, like if you're going to review the balance of evidence, like the body of literature that exists out there um, to do a systematic review, you know, you have to set pretty stringent criteria for how you're going to search the literature. You're going to identify like which types of studies uh, you're going to look at. You know what I mean? You're going to figure out some way to like evaluate the the quality or the reliability of the evidence in all of those studies. This isn't that either. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like they just like fucking Googled, I don't know what, like 12 articles about long COVID. I know that the long COVID literature is a lot bigger than that you know, is a lot larger than that, but they're not, you know, it's not even any kind of systematic evaluation of the long COVID literature. It is literally just them cherry picking a couple studies and doing honest to God, like first year epidemiology, like study critique. Like if someone had (laughs) turned this into me in one of my classes, I would have failed them for it because, um, (laughs) you know, it's just like, it's not, uh, it's not systematic. It's not rigorous. And we'll, we'll get into some of the like methodological issues and and what the debate about that kind of really means later on. But like, I just really want to emphasize how fucked up it is and how, I mean, honestly, I think people should complain to the British medical journal, to the BMJ, um, Because this kind of thing, I mean, this kind of thing should not be published. It should not be published under the head, the heading of analysis, you know, because as you said already, this is how it gets taken up. And this thing that's completely made up, a completely fucking made up op-ed that they've just cherry picked studies, you know what I mean? To to gloss over uh, is now being reported as a definitive finding right. that establishes that the prevalence of long COVID is overstated. And that is absolutely not what it does. But like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just wanted to no, make definitely. that super, super clear. Yeah,
0: no, and- thank
1: you for that, Abby. That was so good.
0: I'm glad that you set us up in that way too, because I think it's really easy, like I was, I think the way that I wanted to enter this was first ideological sort of before we get into the methodology, but I think it's really important Mm -hmm. that you brought that in to just remind us really quickly before we get into any sort of the details of what is being asserted here, whether ideological or methodological, uh, that this is, if you look at it from a perspective of kind of like knowing how the social construction of science works, this is both, as you're saying, a misclassification and basically like totally cherry picked information in order to make their points, which even Mm -hmm. in the assertion of their points, it's like they don't I mean, whatever. We'll we'll get into the problems with it in in a moment. (laughs) But I think that it's important to um, name before we start going through some of the things that it asserts. I want to just sort of really make sure that we are grounded in an understanding of the types of ideological imperatives that this position paper basically on Long COVID just completely wears like front and center like wears right on its sleeve and and these like ideological imperatives i think ultimately shape both the conclusions that they come to and also shape i think the entire nature of the question that they think is the most important or whatever to ask about long COVID. So to to get into this, I want to just, I think we need to look no further than what is in this paper labeled. I know this is a silly thing to do, but literally looking at the key messages box, like there's a box that says like, Mm -hmm. this is the key takeaways. So I'm just going to read really quickly. There are three key messages that they are trying to convey about long COVID through this paper. One, The existing epidemiological research, they say, on long COVID has suffered from overly broad case definitions and a striking absence of control groups, which have led to a distortion of risk. Meaning, as we'll get into in a second, the term long COVID is too broad, and that means that people have a distorted, quote unquote, view of the risk of long COVID. Two, the unintended consequences of this distorted idea of risk may include, but are not limited to, increased social anxiety and healthcare spending, mm-hmm. a failure to diagnose other treatable conditions misdiagnosed as long COVID, and diversion of funds and attention from those who truly suffer from chronic conditions secondary to COVID-19.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Third, future research should include properly matched control groups, sufficient follow-up time after infection, and internationally established diagnostic or inclusion and exclusion criteria. And I just want to highlight a couple of things really quickly before I just turn it back over. But I want to say, first of all, is in the first one, the idea of quote, increased distortion of risk, right? Like, sorry, are you saying it's not happening or that it's not real? Are you saying that it's real? And it's some sort of, uh, it comes like the, the argument comes to mind that it's like, you know, they're suggesting it's sort of in people's head that it's a social contagion that people are like seeing that long COVID exists or seeing the prevalence of long COVID reported to the media and that they're deciding that they have long COVID even though they don't ooh, or something it's
4: mass hysteria. Um,
0: and then I just again I just wanted to like hone in on two things. They are fixated on this idea of this uh, quote increased social anxiety and quote increased healthcare spending which I think these two things just kind of go to show this is what they actually are concerned with or purport to be concerned with. They are suggesting essentially that people are getting too concerned over long COVID, that they are thinking that they're sicker than they are or that they're thinking that they have long COVID when they don't or something.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's also, I guess some of where I think they're going with this comes from spending a little too much time digging through Vinay Prasad's YouTube channel. So I will say, like, this is, I think, implied in in what they're saying. But I feel like what they're saying regarding the distortion of risk is something along the lines of not only is the risk surrounding long COVID, uh, in their opinion, being distorted in all of these ways, but also that long COVID's distortion is being used to distort the severity and the understanding of risk regarding COVID writ large Mm -hmm. and in particular asymptomatic or quote unquote mild mildly symptomatic COVID which are again this is the target as already mentioned at the top of, of these cases that Prasad recently has been going on these screeds saying do not test yourself do not you know, yeah. report your mild case, because if we don't report our mild cases, he says in that piece, then we will do our part basically to stop the cycle of mass hysteria by refusing to participate in the aggregation of the data that fuels that hysteria.
0: I know it's early, but can I play that clip that oh we have? God, yes, please. Okay, so yeah. l- Les, do you think B is overstating the case? We have a clip, for example, of a... Uh, YouTube video of Prasad's from January of this year where he talks about this explicitly and calls long COVID
2: a boogeyman. Mm -hmm. Long COVID. I have yet to see any evidence for severely ill people that adjusted for the severity of the illness and the duration of time on the vent that having had COVID versus RSV or influenza made a lick of difference in your recovery. Okay, I've yet to see that. There is a new claim being made. That's you can have mild or asymptomatic respiratory virus, a mild or asymptomatic respiratory virus, and it can ruin the rest of your life. That's a very important claim. I worry that the claim is not being made for scientific reasons and on the basis of scientific studies with control arms. I worry the claim is being made because that claim nicely dovetails with the policy goal that a group of people want to have perpetual restrictions. They're not satisfied taking precautions themselves. They want others to bear those restrictions too. How do you justify that in a world with vaccines? How do you justify that when the IFR is falling? The only way to justify it is to come up with a bogeyman, And the bogeyman is clear. If you can have an asymptomatic infection. It can ruin the rest of your life. Where is the evidence?
1: <laughs> so, I mean, I wasn't... I wasn't being facetious. I wasn't exaggerating. That is that is exactly basically this claim, right, that he's making here is that not only is this going to have these huge harms in terms of people who, in his opinion, do not deserve to consider themselves ill and are, you know, sort of participating in what's called illness behavior out of some, you know, psychological issue, which again he's like fully not qualified to make a judgment like that as an oncologist, but that he that he doesn't care about that, right? But that, you know, beyond that that the construction of long covid as it's allowed to exist, which, you know, is something that is highly contested, that is still subject to a lot of minimization that even that tiny sort of piece of ground that has been ceded to long COVID, that this is part of some big fucking ideological plan for, you know, forever lockdown fucking bullshit. I mean, this is literally you know, a conspiracy theory that people are using a diagnostic category being negotiated, which is a normal social fucking process of medicine, as he should well know as an oncologist. You know, this is an instance of diagnosis being negotiated uh, in the public sphere, which is common. This is how this works. It's contested. And he's saying that that contestation, that that patients having any involvement in this whatsoever, that, that all of these other researchers, that they are part of some big fucking Plot for restrictions forever. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is literally a conspiracy theory, much like a lot of the other things that he puts forward, frankly.
0: Yeah. And to that end, also, you can see that, you know, that ideological commitment goes so far as to, again, in this paper, they write, quote, we propose future research avoid the umbrella term long COVID and instead more narrowly define certain post-COVID syndromes or symptoms. And this kind of last part is what's, you know, really important to just hone in on for a second. That is something that legitimately we really have to collectively work to resist because, you know, as B's talking about long COVID is a term that was created by the people experiencing it. That is not unique in the history of medicine, but nor is it unique in the history of medical authority to you know, try to suppress those things. This then puts that in a long tradition of self-directed advocacy that it's not surprising to see threatened here. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Uh, Because it's always threatened whenever a patient groups name something that people in various gatekeeping positions come to believe is, you know, shortcutting the social construction of science or whatever, as they are basically explicitly saying here. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wanted to put this out there front and center because I think this is something that is a demand we need to keep on the medical establishment and that needs to be resisted in terms of the social reproduction of this idea, right? Because while they're not the only people to be saying this right now, they are saying it really explicitly. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it is important to retain long COVID as a term, as a container, like if only, even because of its, because this allows the patient group with it to have and maintain a political identity that is singular that they created themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You know, this is a, a perfect moment for us to jump into the op-ed itself into, you know, some of these uh, claims they're making here about methodology and why exactly they need to sort of control and take away this category. You know, part of what is at stake here is not just sort of who is within the boundaries of long COVID and whether or not that's a valid container. It's also the current narrative around causality and even having it be connected to the pandemic and the spread of the pandemic is also sort of what is fundamentally at stake at the core of of what their argument is trying to challenge and undermine. Um, Mm -hmm. So, Abby, I know, you know, we've been itching to get to this part. Um, You did a great job sort of setting up what This was at the top, but sort of would you walk through to start us off here broadly? how would you sort of characterize some of the the methodology that they're doing and, like, what they're attempting to do here? Because I feel like the, the structure of it, to just, like, call it an op-ed can be a little misleading because it's very, like, it's an attempt to really make, like, a persuasive... It's a persuasive um, essay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's more like a stump speech of some kind than even, like, an op-ed usually is.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So this is... Um, the eighth grade vibes persist through everything (laughs) that like Vinay and Tracy do together. And this is no exception. It really is just kind of like it's slightly more than five paragraphs, but it really is like a pretty formulaic persuasive essay. And what they're trying to persuade readers of is everything that we've been talking about. um, That essentially the core of their argument is that there are all these methodological problems with the research on long COVID Ergo, the prevalence of long covid is like way exaggerated, so <laughs> right off the bat, there is just kind of like a core and I think it's a fatal flaw in their argument, just conceptually speaking right off the get-go you know like this doesn't we could we could really end it <laughs> we could really end it here because this is the <laughs> mm-hmm. this is the big thing mm-hmm. we're not going to end it here, but uh the big flaw in their in their argument is that. We don't know what the prevalence of long COVID is, so it's actually impossible to surmise one way or the other, whether it is exaggerated or not. And part of the reason that we don't know the prevalence is because we don't fully know what long COVID is yet. So I really take your point, Artie, about the importance of of using the term long COVID because it's something that people can use to identify with and to politicize their symptoms and things like that. But we don't really know what the prevalence is because there is still some fuzziness around what exactly this disease entity really is. And so you really can't make the claim that the prevalence is overestimated when you don't know what the ground truth of the prevalence is anyway, which means that the BMJ shouldn't have fucking published this shit, but they did. So I guess that is like one place where you can make these types of claims. And I think that like, I don't know, I'm not really sure how to talk about this, but like there is something going on here about the ontology of disease. Mm -hmm. And you can tell that Vinay and Tracy are physicians because they think that diseases are concrete entities, maybe corresponding to some kind of causative agent, maybe to a couple of causative agents that are listed in textbooks. You know what I mean? And that you learn about um, and you learn what the what the, the symptoms are and you learn how to diagnose them. And that is just not that is like an ontological status that long covid does not have simply because it's novel right people are figuring out what it means to live with it people are trying to figure out how to study it
0: well and this is explicitly an attempt to pre-limit what that oh is.
3: absolutely it's an attempt to pre-limit it and something else that's going on that's kind of sinister maybe at like the ideological level or at more of like a meta level is the way that they're trying to to pre-limit this population of people who are, you know, sick enough uh, to have long COVID or to claim that they have long COVID. The way that this is being done is a persuasive essay that purports to review the methodological issues that in their view plague the existing research into long COVID. But the thing is that the methodological issues that they identify, that they're treating as like fatal, you know, that they are treating, that they are just straight up claiming, um, are resulting in this this inflation of the prevalence of long COVID, these methodological issues are really, really context-dependent. I mean, first of all, they are common to basically all research, certainly in public health and certainly observational research that isn't like sort of randomized controlled trials. Now, Vinay Prasad and Tracy Hoag are huge partisans for randomized controlled trials. You know, that's part of what their, their situation in like the evidence-based medicine movement is about. And you can tell, I mean, it's it's very clear in a lot of Vinay Prasad's like writing and his podcasting and stuff that he doesn't, he subscribes to this thing, the this hierarchy of evidence that we're all taught in school where like RCTs provide like the best, randomized controlled trials provide the best evidence, you know, and then you go down the pyramid and all the other study designs are just like worse and worse. But- you know, you can't always do randomized controlled trials and there are ways of doing, you know, more observational research that do, you know, these the methodological issues that they are, are identifying are common to all of this research, but they are also context dependent. So they are not automatically disqualifying just because they exist. You know what I mean? The methodological issue that they identify of there being conflicting definitions of long covid That's not disqualifying of long COVID research. That's just kind of like how it is. So they're doing something that really should be kind of, I don't know, like a nuanced, uh, like weighing of the different like limitations that the methods of the research impose on the research findings. And instead, they're just saying like, oh, well, you this study had people self-report their COVID symptoms. So obviously, like that's bogus. And it's like, well, that's not true. So I don't know. That's just kind of my like very, very general overview of what I think is wrong with this. Like, I think it's a a, it's a mode of like argumentation that they are are using that that doesn't really work. But basically, like they can't they have no basis to make the claim that they are making because we don't know what the true prevalence is. So we can't say whether the prevalence is exaggerated or not. Like we we just can't say that we don't know it. And to make a claim that's like that about the risk of of developing long COVID is even more tenuous. You know what I mean? That's even more steps removed from like the fundamental uncertainty at the heart of this sort of research process, which I don't think is like, you know, I don't think it's a it's a. A totally disqualifying or a totally fatal uncertainty. It's just kind of how like research goes, and to me, it feels very standard. But I don't think Vinay and Tracy like actually conduct a lot of research, so I don't know. They seem pretty unfamiliar with with the with the process.
0: I think that's a really great overview of some of the problems in the piece here, and I think let's just try and go through the piece a little bit and try and see like where some of these things come out. So for example, I want to just like read from the very beginning of this. It's a short document. I encourage everyone to take a look at it, especially if you want to see some specious crap um, <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the day. I don't know. Uh, th- this is how they they begin and frame the whole uh, argument. And then I want to get into kind of each of the specific sort of gripes that they seem mm-hmm. to have about the current state of long COVID research. Uh, So they write, quote, high rates of long COVID or post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 PASC continue to be reported in academic journals and subsequently filtered to the public. (laughs) Um, You'll see a lot of this language. For instance, the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, recently stated nearly one in five Americans who have had COVID-19 still have long covid Many scientific publications overestimate PASC. Uh, They're making, they go to length to like use that instead of long COVID. Um, Many scientific publications overestimate PASC prevalence because of overly broad definitions, lack of control groups, inappropriate control groups, and other methodological flaws. That's an overview of some of the elements that we'll be talking about in a moment. Quote, this problem is further compounded by inclusion of poorly conducted studies into <laughs> systematic reviews and meta-analyses that overstate the risk. This is fed to the public by the media and social media, raising undue concern and anxiety. This paper aims to c- discuss these estimation errors and why epidemiologic research on long COVID has been misleading. Um, and then I wanted to note again, they later they later add... The quote, we propose further research, avoid using the umbrella term long COVID. Um, that I think sets us up uh pretty well because that that tells us exactly what they are, you know, positioning this as. Um, but then I think just to get into some of the individual the actual sort of gripes that they have are interesting because they're kind of they're they're like if you think about them for a second, or if you if you like kind of understand how when trying to approach research like this in a way that would actually benefit the patient population, how you would embrace some of the ambiguity that they're railing against here. Um, I think it just becomes very clear like what they're doing here and how trash this whole, this approach is (laughs) Mm -hmm, not just mm -hmm. again, not just this like statement that they're putting out, but sort of like this, this sort of set of tools that they're suggesting being, uh, being turned towards like really, anything like if you imagine there's some new syndrome or something that comes Mm -hmm. along like this is just this whole thing is basically like a set of methodological recipes for as severely limiting like who you're going to identify as who you're going to like try to be you know helping or or however you want to phrase it uh who we're going to be trying to be caring for when you're like assessing who is and is not in a patient population in any case so the first concern that they have is they talk about how the prevalence of long COVID is supposedly overstated in existing medical literature because they say they, they have kind of two two main gripes, I'd say, at the outset. One is that they say essentially that the definition of long COVID is too expansive, yeah. is too broad, which mm-hmm. is a, one whole issue we'll get into, I think, in a moment. And the the kind of Second component of that is one that I find just fascinating in (laughs) how like egregiously simplistic it is, which is they assert that while we're talking about strictly defining who does and does not have long COVID, we must make sure that anyone who is counted for the purposes of medical study as a long COVID patient must have some sort of diagnostic test attached to that, which the reason I say egregiously simplistic is even if you just look in the United States context, I just want to make this point like like crystal clear. Um, and I know that like a lot of people, like I've seen a lot of people, um, with long COVID saying really similar things. So in a lot of ways, I'm just kind of repeating some of the things that I have seen um, people with long COVID say about themselves, right, is when the criteria for whether you are a verifiable case of long COVID or not is tied to you having a test, that is obviously an issue, especially when things like access to testing, access to PCRs are not things that are guaranteed nor are they perfect diagnostics by any measure they also mentioned serology which has its own problems but like specifically even just with testing i can't think of a single point in this pandemic where pcr testing was actually as like free and widely available as we would have liked it to have been during Mm -hmm. 2020 it was fucking impossible to find um 2021 was maybe the peak of availability, I would say, of PCR tests, which is pretty sad, in my opinion. Um, and I think the reason that it was probably the peak of availability was because there are more programs around to uh, to actually do the testing or whatever. But like, a lot of that infrastructure was dismantled as it was still being built up, essentially, mm-hmm. as we've talked about um, many times. Again, you know, the claim is that in order to say that you have long COVID, you have to have some documentation that you had COVID in the first place. Mm-hmm. But then there, it's yeah, like this paradoxical time. claim that they're fucking saying. Because on one hand, like, I, th- th- again, I, I mean, I, I'm digressing a lot here. But like, this is where it just like it smacks with just these overlapping, just like layer after layer after layer of ideology. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, they're saying anyone who's going to count as a long COVID patient needs to have a past COVID test, like a PCR or something or a serology result that they that shows that they have had COVID before they developed long COVID because like, God forbid, someone could get sick, like continue to be sick and realize eventually that they have long COVID have never gotten tested at any point during that. Um, I say, God forbid, I'm saying like that's an extremely common uh, experience. They're saying you need this diagnostic test. In order to sort of like prove to bio certify your position as someone with long COVID, and saying that presumably because we have to like discern who has verifiably had or has not had COVID before. Um, when at the same time, like mm-hmm. one of the co authors of this paper, Vinay Prasad, is like the guy going around saying, don't test anymore, <laughs> opt out of the testing regime or whatever. And Is saying stuff like I think we clipped him the last time that we did a clip of Vinay Prasad in uh, in a previous episode um, saying stuff like COVID is going to like everyone's going to get COVID COVID is going to be with us forever until we all kill ourselves as a society or whatever, Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so it's like this, it's this really perverse. It's so obvious the ideological perspective here because you're saying we have to like really limit this to the people we can be sure had COVID. Well, in other media, and generally speaking, all over the place, people coming from this exact ideological position about long COVID are saying of COVID We've itself, all had COVID. oh, everyone's got it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, exactly. Like, excuse I, me?
3: <laughs> I wrote that down. I, uh, as you were speaking, I was like, something very interesting about these folks is that different parts of their own internal lore are inconsistent with one another. Constantly, Um, which is I mean, it's because the work that they're doing is is purely ideological, but they're always saying like almost everyone has had covid, you know, so it's not it's not clear what the utility of these types of tests are, except ideologically, like to, to limit the population. Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm not trying to interrupt your, your setup already. I have a lot no, more no, to say was, on this point. but uh,
0: I was done, so well, <laughs> you, can, you guys can go
3: in. No, I mean, I think this is really
1: important here because one of the things that is going on, and I just want to name really quickly, the last time we talked about Prasad, we talked about the sick role a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason why this is taken so unequivocally as an affront to like the very structure of society and the authority of medicine itself Is because quite literally, I think that these three doctor advocates see this as an instance of the rapid normalization of self-diagnosis.
0: Yep. This is a process
1: that every single sick person engages in. Let's be real. The illness behavior framing. Part of the idea of what illness behavior is, of transitioning to the sick role. All of these theorizations of, of what the sick role is and does to you. All of this shit often ignores what has gone on in a person's life before they get to the doctor, right? It ignores, you know, the minimizing that we do to ourselves, the times we talk ourselves out of, you know, the small symptoms that pop up here and there that we're ignoring and we're ignoring. And all of a sudden. Uh, you know things are still suddenly off right like this is there's a durational aspect to this people are not waking up one day and saying oh by god i've got long covid gee golly like (laughs) what the fuck are you talking about when i like this kind of idea that people are like reading online about long covid and being like well maybe i have long covid well duh this is how many patients hear about different (laughs) things and go Mm -hmm. oh well maybe i might Maybe this thing that I've been experiencing that I have been minimizing my experience of over and over and over and over again. You know, I had problems with my vision for a year before I went blind. You know what I told myself? I'm reading too much.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I'm using my phone too much. It turns out I've gotten migraines my entire life. And I didn't know that's what they were until two or three years ago. (laughs) Right. I mean, I
4: already And Juvena
0: Prasad and Tracy Beth Hoag, both of you are good, conscientious consumers of your own health care.
1: <laughs> but I mean, we already individually engage in the kind of gatekeeping that they are imagining we are never mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. patients, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like yep. they are thinking, I have a runny nose one day and I'm like, oh my God, I must, this must be a new symptom. Like mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. the, 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 And I'm not saying all doctors see things this way, but this is how medical education teaches doctors to see things. You know, we talk about social determinants of health. They they know objectively that these things exist. Right. And yet, for some reason, the moment before you walk in the office, like your entire life, the context of everything. Right. Like it doesn't matter often unless it could potentially explain what you're bringing to the doctor and asserting is a symptom which is a form of self-diagnosis, right? To say, I'm experiencing yeah. this thing frequently. Identifying a
4: symptom. I'm yeah, identifying
1: sure. it and I am separating it from acute experiences of feeling off, right? Like having those headache days or, or, or you know, just not feeling a hundred percent, right? Like we already do this gatekeeping to ourselves that they mm-hmm. are saying we need to stand up, first of mm-hmm. all. Second of all, what's going on here is that they are saying that with covid We are facing this crisis of actually physician authority being challenged by the role that patients are taking in the discussion and the negotiation over what long COVID is, which is bullshit because if you look, this is actually expecting to hold long COVID to a standard that no other disease is held to. What, you're going to discount patient experiences and conceptualizing what MS is? How the fuck is a doctor who studies MS (laughs) supposed to know what living with MS is like if they're not the ones that have to live with it 24 hours a fucking day? You know what I mean? Like, (sighs) it's absolutely illogical. And that's because this is a baseless, soundless, ridiculous defense of the physician control of the yes. authority of who gets to say who is sick like if we think about you know so- self diagnosis this is a part of everyone's process of of deciding that you're sick with anything Right. Like, how do we all decide to test ourselves with COVID? How do we decide that (sighs) we have a cold or the flu or all those people who experience symptoms and say, oh, you know, it can't be COVID. It's definitely allergies and are in denial. Right. This is this is what self-diagnosis actually is. Right. It's it's not some sort of magical claiming of of. um you know, some kind of like secondary gain or, or searching for an identity. It is literally just making meaning out of the observations of how your body is responding to your everyday life. And 99% of the time, the people who are entering into that clinical encounter saying, here are symptoms I would like to talk to you about, Mr. Physician or Mrs. Physician or whatever the fuck, they're going to think, okay here's someone who's coming in with like a list of things that they've already pre-conceptualized and thought about this Ooh, they, person is coming in right they've been going to dr google not dr me like blah 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 you know like all these motherfuckers who are like this and and what that is ultimately is this is a very big violation of norms which mm-hmm. is like the idea being that you're supposed to sort of come into the doctor i guess naively ignoring your own observations about your lived experience and your life and what's bothering you and just sort of regurgitate information at them so that they can what well, I don't know interpret what you're experiencing without your input like it's an absolutely ridiculous framing to think that this could be removed from the clinical encounter but this is a normative expectation that is held by physicians namely But other medical professionals alone, and the idea is that, you know, the authority and expertise that their degrees and experience confers on them allows them to be the only people who have the expertise to decide who is genuinely sick and who is, I don't know, victim of a social fad, who went to Um, Dr. Google and is now, you know, experiencing some sort of paranoid hypochondriac delusion, right? Which is Like if we think about this here again as a negotiation over a causal narrative, like did COVID cause this or did hysteria cause this is basically what's kind of being negotiated here. This is a ridiculously complicated causal assertion. What, that instead of being exposed to this virus that you have all said we're all going to get and everybody's going to be exposed to and that that could possibly have some effect on the world? know that uniquely groups of people have coalesced and infected each other with a fucking mass hysteria social contagion where they're all playing ill fun. Like, what the fuck are you talking about?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think it's really important to like, I, I don't think it's possible to read this another way. And it's really important that we don't read it any other way, because I think that, you know, for example, I mean, they're really explicit about this. They write, quote, one French study, for example, found that self-reporting of persistent symptoms was more strongly associated with the belief <laughs> of having been infected than with having had laboratory confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection and this this is kind of just thrown off as this evidence for this is why we need like these really strict diagnostic criteria as though again as B is asserting as though it's like it's not that people are experiencing something real realizing that there are similar experiences other people are having and saying oh my god there's a word for that that's probably what I have and Figuring that out. No, it's a it's like a social contagion or something. I keep I keep uh, Mm -hmm. I kept over the course of reading this. I kept thinking over and over about some of the conversations that we've had recently, for instance, about like. The whole sort of, like, anti-trans discourse about social contagion, for example, and the idea that transness is this thing that has to be kept through psychological distress and immiseration, and that, like, the only thing that's creating all these trans people all of a sudden is, like, TikTok or something like that, and... I say this in part because like, not only do I think that it's an important analogy to like draw because these are groups of people who are under attack in unique ways, obviously, but in ways that are like the, the tactics used against them are overlapping here, this like social contagion thesis, right? But also because like, I have to say, I had this, the experience of watching one of Vinay Prasad's YouTube videos after I had you know been reading this and like thinking about this overlap specifically, The first ad that I see on this fucking Vinay Prasad YouTube video is an ad for, like, some reactionary documentary about how, like, trans identity is just a social contagion.
3: (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just I want to bring what you're both saying kind of down into the muck of the actual text of this thing, because, like, all this stuff is going on in the background. And I think the way that B put it is really... Is really smart because this document represents at once a negotiation over the causal story of covid and long covid so it's a negotiation over how it is that covid itself and and not just covid itself but our pandemic our pandemic policy has resulted um in long covid you know at the individual or population level that's very much a a contested causal story and they are trying to weigh in in one very specific way And it's also a negotiation over who the narrator of like long COVID ought to be, I guess, or like who has the epistemic authority to make claims about long COVID. And I feel like if we view the piece in this way, through these two lenses, it's a lot easier to see what they're doing, because their argument actually proceeds in a very weird way. So like in the first you know, we've alluded to this a lot, but in this, in the first section of the paper, um, what they start off talking about is um, the the thing that is is weakening. You know, research into long COVID that makes all the epidemiologic research about long COVID unreliable, in their view, uh, are these issues with case definitions. Okay, so this is how their argument is proceeding. They're saying that the population of people who you know claim to have long COVID is too broad, and in order to make this argument. They are saying it's it's just weird how they do it because they're like, OK, you know, this population is too broad. That's that's what they believe. But they're they're making this argument about biocertification and needing to certify serologically that people who claim to be experiencing long covid actually did have covid. But you can you can almost miss it in this section because. They say, you know, like there are four, I think, like internationally used um, and accepted like consensus definitions of long COVID that that people are working with. And all of those definitions do like require some kind of like antecedent COVID infection, um, but they quickly just pivot away from that. And they're like, you know, they could just say like, hey, you know, like we recommend that studies use one of these four definitions for now, but that's not what they do. You know, they quickly just pivot away to talking about all these studies that, that inappropriately, in their view, allow patients to self-report, you know, that they had COVID at some time in the past or to self-report that they're experiencing symptoms of long COVID. And there is kind of like, there is somewhat of like an, uh, a niche, like epidemiologic, uh, like methodological dimension to the question of self-report Um, that I think this piece is kind of like puppeteering in a weird way. And I don't know that it's like legible to maybe the broader community that's reading this, but tons of epidemiologic research uses self-report and a lot of it has to, and there are often very, very good reasons to use self-report. And I think that like using self-report in these studies of long COVID while the pandemic is still ongoing, makes actually a lot of sense for for a lot of the reasons that B was describing. But I just found it so interesting because, you know, I was reading it and I was thinking like, wait, why do you have to say all this stuff about self-report? And why do you have to say all this stuff about, you know, people getting blood tests? I mean, they say that like, oh, serology, these blood tests can be done at any time, which like they absolutely can't like in a research setting like that. That doesn't make any sense. Um, but I was wondering like why they're they're marshalling all this stuff when you know, it seems like the issue that they raised they already answered. You know what I mean in the, in the first sentence and it's like, okay, well if you think the definitions are are too diffuse or, you know, not um like actionable enough for research purposes, then you just say like, okay, like we think in this persuasive essay that everyone ought to use one of these four consensus definitions. But they they then proceed through this whole other argument. And I feel like the whole other argument doesn't make sense unless you understand it as an attempt to limit the population of people with long COVID, you know, like rhetorically and ideologically and methodologically um, by simply excluding from consideration um, any studies that don't meet this, like, really, really minor I think, um, and fairly unimportant, like methodological bar.
1: Right. I mean, I think fundamentally, because they see no issue with people just being like randomly infected with covid as many times a year as is necessary to keep society moving forward. Um, You know, part of what maybe is going on here, you know, to speak again to your point earlier, Abby, about like it seems like they're struggling over the ontology of disease in in this piece because Mm -hmm. like if we think about like what disease is like the concept of disease is actually kind of two things right it's like a description it's like the the symptoms it's the measurement of how that presentation of that person um differs from like the functional or quote-unquote healthy norm Mm -hmm. right that's Mm -hmm. established And then it's an evaluation, which is like a judgment that this is like not just like a difference from the norm, but that it's like an abnormal, dangerous or dysfunctional difference Mm -hmm. from the norm. And if you believe that it is the norm to get infected as many times as is necessary in a calendar year with covid and that you can do so without consequence if you have positive mental attitude about it, I guess, <laughs> is kind of their assertion. Um, then I could see a world in which you think that really what you're making an assertion of here is that long COVID is not a disease, right? That long COVID is the norm, actually, that these that these things that people are experiencing, they're either the norm or they're being misattributed to COVID itself mm-hmm. um, and to the effects of covid towards political ends right and to mm-hmm. to to really make that argument with a straight face to say this is normal think of this as normal this is not suffering this is a difference of interpretation a difference in meaning a disagreement about meaning mm-hmm. i mean it's hard mm-hmm. to think of a more insulting way to conceptualize what people have been experiencing but also, this is kind of Prasad's brand, right? Yeah, of like, This is who he is. This is how he thinks. He takes his expertise, his narrow field of exposure to medicine, and he extrapolates theories about the entire world from that very tiny world that he comes from.
0: Right, because again, this is sort of, I think this dovetails really well with the stuff that we've talked about with regards to Prasad recently, but also like in the past, in the in the episode that we've referenced again recently, like um, a general theory of B- Vinay Prasad. There's this idea that is also, I think, reproduced in this text, but there's this idea, I think, that you have intrinsically sick people and intrinsically healthy people and never the twain shall meet. And also <laughs> yeah. there's like very little if no uh like I want to be a little bit generous I guess and say like there there's little to no um (laughs) like ambiguity or like uh spectrum between the two in this sort of uh worldview and I think that that clearly to you know to me that I think comes across in stuff like there's there's assertions in this that you know we we may just be capturing a norm because um they basically say like, Oh, a lot of things can give you the stuff that people identify as long COVID. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But like, Oh, sure. That's irrelevant. Get... Like, um,
1: Same with every single other diagnostic category, <laughs> yeah. as you well know, you three motherfucking doctors.
0: Um, but then they also, Fuck you know, in when you get into sort of what, okay, what are the problems that they say that they have with these studies that they have chosen that they have cherry picked of the of the studies available what are the problems that they have with the specific studies that they have chosen um they talk about control groups at some length and Uh one of their problems with there's like a section for instance that says inappropriately matched (laughs) control groups i'm just going to read a a chunk of this i'm
1: glad you're bringing this Um,
0: in and this this should tell you a lot about like the way that they think again th- this kind of relates to the sort of like the idea of there are intrinsically healthy people and intrinsically unhealthy people never the twain shall meet and there is a you know social danger in people who are intrinsically healthy beginning to view themselves as the costly <laughs> ill uh, so they write quote inappropriately matched controls Not only should control groups be included, they should also be properly matched to cases, ideally by age, sex, geography, socioeconomic status, and if possible, underlying health and health behaviors. There you go. The CDC, for (laughs) example, estimated 38% of case patients experienced an incident condition within a year of COVID-19 diagnosis documented in the electronic health record compared with 16% of control groups. However, they failed to acknowledge that those who are diagnosed with COVID-19 in healthcare settings tend to be less healthy at baseline than those who do not seek COVID-19 testing in the healthcare system, which could have biased the estimate by including more severe cases in the post-COVID group. And they then continue to um, gripe. That's
1: a ridiculous statement.
0: Yes, it is a ridiculous statement. And then they continue on to gripe about a separate VA study Veterans Administration uh, a veterans affairs, uh, study where they say, uh, quote, the authors of this study, which looked specifically at patients in the VA system, right? Like vet, like definitionally veterans and their families, they say of this study, quote, the authors themselves describe the cases as being predominantly white, male, older, more obese on multiple regular medications and having poorer underlying health than the general population. Thus, it was expected they would also have very high rates of multiple symptoms and outpatient encounters post-COVID-19. And so, there Again, you have... what's the norm? In one swift move, we have to rigidly control for this population because, you know, some of these people are just fucking sick anyway. Some of these people, it's 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 just like, it's the same bullshit as the fucking, you know, death pulled from the future shit. Mm-hmm. It's the same, you know, it's the same eugenic nonsense that we've seen throughout this entire pandemic and exists in so many ways in our political economy, obviously. And that's why it's very easy, I think, to see like there's so many, um, you know, when you when you look at there, there are some, for instance, uh, responses to this paper that are like liberals complaining about certain things that they'll say, like certain conclusions that Prasad and Hoag came to at like by the end of the paper. But then they're saying like they fundamentally agree at the end of the day that you should that we need to like severely limit definition of who is and is not a long covid patient because it's because of basically this argument Mm -hmm, here mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is well how do we know if they have long covid or if they're just fucking sickly people and to begin with i'm sorry fuck you
1: like this is this is the other thing though because like identifying disease diagnosing disease right as we said this is like interpretation, you know, meets the evaluation, right? It's like, is this a description of the norm or a deviation? And is this a good or normal deviation? Um, It's also considered to be conferring social legitimacy to the description of the patient's symptoms. Like, not only relieving patients by giving them an answer, but by giving some of your legitimacy as a clinician to the patient and relieving them of suspicions that they are malingering or of suspicions that you are exaggerating the things that you're going through. Like this is the thing also that they're saying we have to be very careful about handing out. And also, frankly, they're saying we don't trust our colleagues Mm -hmm. to hand this out appropriately, which is, I think, worth saying. They are also saying here that physicians, even though this is all about physician authority, they're also saying that physicians do not have the actual discerning judgment required to well, deny or that
0: they may be too trusting.
4: Yeah.
1: Right. To deny the legitimacy that they're giving long COVID patients when they shouldn't be, right? Because the idea is that diagnosis isn't just a science right? Diagnosis also has social implications and subtle socioeconomic implications. If you give someone a diagnosis, are they going to be able to apply for eligibility for disability benefits, right? So scary. Are they going to become, you know, through this generous moment of physician benevolence and pity, I'm sure how they imagine it, that this you know, stretching of the bounds of physician authority to accept long COVID patients where they're at. Like, this is going to bankrupt the country. Like, are you fucking kidding me? The kinds of ways that they conceptualize different uh, distractions from the true problem of medicine and our wealth like transfer system that exists, that their profession is really important to, right? Like, these are people who... They, um, they survive in capitalism by protecting physician authority and by passing these judgments out. And they're also saying that, that part of how we're going to survive is like that all other doctors need to put their judgment aside and listen to what, Vinay Prasad? Like, what a fucking <laughs> insulting way to approach your peers.
0: Co-author Tracy Beth Hoag speaks to Times Radio in the UK the
4: 26th of September.
1: And then we have this other issue of, you know, people are afraid, uh, you know, that they're very afraid of getting COVID because they think their likelihood of getting long COVID is so high. And we also have, you know, people who are going to the doctor with vague symptoms and the doctor says, well, it's probably long COVID because they're reading these papers, but it's not long COVID at all. It's something else that they really should be worked up for and treated for.
2: Is there a psychological thing here, then, that long COVID is something of a crutch?
1: Right? Like, there's something (laughs) fundamentally antagonistic about this towards other physicians as well, which is also, I think, unusual and important to name because it's part of it is also, like, you know, a kind of they-know-not-what-they-do argument. And this whole, you know... you may
0: think that you're proffering an ultimate social good by legitimating... This person who came into your office saying, I have long COVID and saying, yes, in fact, you do. But you know not what you do. Right. Kind of thing. Yeah. Right.
1: Like mm-hmm. and and I think one of the things that they're most afraid of is the way this diagnosis gives people community. Yeah. And how that gives that community power. And the last thing that Vinay Prasad wants is for people
3: with long COVID to have power. I want to make a very prosaic point. <laughs> About this, this particular section about inappropriately matched controls, again, to kind of bring it into the body of the text and to illustrate like how weird, you know, because all of this stuff is so underground and like it's masquerading as a technical document. You know what I mean? Or as yeah. a, like a real scientific analysis or critique. And it's not that at all. And the arguments are so weird. Like, I'm saying it again. The arguments are so weird the way they're making them without having this kind of, like, background. Because, you know, they're saying that it is a... uh, They're asserting, they're arguing it is a huge problem that dooms all existing long COVID research and means that, you know, any existing prevalence estimates that we have from scientific studies that have been done to date are bogus and need to be thrown out, you know, presumably so that Vinay Prasad can like define it himself and personally decide, you know, who who is um, legitimately, you know, like diagnosable with long COVID or whatever. Uh, the way that they're doing this is by saying like, oh, but there's bias in these studies. You know, sometimes... <laughs> the control groups are like different in some kind of systematic way from the treatment group or whatever you want to call it, um, the the comparator group. And um, that happens. And that tends to happen a lot in observational research, the kind that Vinay Prasad like doesn't do and doesn't know anything about. Again, there's like a very easy answer to this problem you know, that they're raising of like, oh, the, 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 um, the control groups and the compare groups, comparator groups, they're systematically different. Well, like, well, 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 like, guess we can't believe any of this, but typically what you do in studies where those groups are systematically different is like statistical adjustment for the ways that they're different. And when you statistically adjust for those differences, you get a different story. So again, I'm saying this all, you know, it's not that important to like know any of this, but like there's like a very, very, clear, like the thing that they're identifying as a huge problem is actually not a problem at all. You know, like it's not a problem at all for conducting this kind of research. And the thing that is making it, a pr- you know, like the motivator here is like all of this really like underground ideological stuff, all of this anxiety about physicians not being powerful enough and like patients being too powerful and people, you know, being empowered to decide that they are sick you know without um the imprint of of physician authority or whatever and again i mean i'm bringing this up just to say like the the document itself is so weird and it totally like fails you know it makes no sense basically as like a, a methodologic critique or like a scientific document and it totally fails in that way and the only way that it makes sense is understanding it in this other way and in that sense I think it's been very effective at what it is intended to do because as we said, you know, kind of at the top of the show, like it's getting picked up by media as like a study has identified that, you know, long covid prevalence is really overestimated and, and obviously like no such thing is the case.
1: Well, the thing that's so frustrating is that all I think in all these framings too, like, you know, what's implied here is also that the kind of motivations for doing this research wrong Are this kind of grand conspiracy and this is Mm -hmm. another thing that that Prasad um elaborates on at great length whenever given the opportunity whether that's on his own channel or on appearances he kind of has this this idea of like extractive pharma capitalism that's so oversimplified right that the idea here is that doctors and researchers have this negative incentive to indulge covid patients also (laughs) um, (laughs) and indulge the idea of long covid because with it comes uh, you know some sort of like grant like, social you know, capital, slush fund plus social capital. Special social
0: supports that don't exist but could.
1: Right. Know. Like, the kinds of ways that this also stands up the kind of balance of conflict of interest, right? Like, and that the kind of conflict of interest is contained within the very model of like financialized medicalization, right? But that has to be located and like fought at the level of the individual patient encounter by, Preventing people from being medicalized, I think that's that's part of also what's what's sort of going on is that like, you know, you could sometimes when we critique medicalization, I'll get questions from people where they were like, they're like, you know, do you ever worry that your arguments against medicalization are going to be hoovered up by these fuckers like Prasad, right? Who also critique medicalization but are coming from the position that reinforces dominant power, right? that thinks that this is a conspiracy of patients trying to get out of their normal social obligations and get out of work and loaf around like malingering shits that they are, right? Like that everybody like me is just full of it. Like that's his critique of medicalization, that we're ruining lives over doctors' careers. And in the way that like the the failure also here to locate like what this denial of the sick role is going to do to people, Right. The potential causal consequences of denying people access to, you know, an experience of validity and confirmation of, of what they've been going through and the symptoms that they're reporting, like as if they haven't already tried things probably to make themselves better. The assumption merely that they haven't already tried to, quote unquote, help themselves that is contained within in this, that. Like itself, there there is a body of evidence, even some of it RCTs, that show harm from denying people the sick role, particularly when looking at, for example, the MS population historically over time, the amount of people who it turns out later had MS. You know, MS itself has broken into a number of different things. This is a Mm -hmm. condition that for a long time had very little recognition, very little legitimacy, despite being... You know, disabling and well studied. There was little understanding of it. And for a long time, people with MS were denied the sick role and told this is just like an ailment. This is just being, you know, uh, a person with a uterus. This is just like what happens after you get pregnant. This is just like you're reading too much, like whatever it is, right? Maybe you're just tired from work. There are so many ways that those small negations build up into harms, psycho, emotional, physical harm over time whether it's convincing someone's family members that their care isn't valid, right? And how that shifts the entire way other people in their life who are there to, you mm-hmm. know, be part of their care and support network start treating them, or how, how you know, their friends or anyone else, right? Like, this is a thing that that they're not talking about here, which is also really, really key, which is like, when shit like this goes around, when a study, you know, is or when a when an op-ed is misrepresented as a study and then held up as proof that people with long COVID have gone too far, right? And are claiming something <laughs> they don't deserve. What the fuck do you think that does to people with long COVID skeptical family members when they encounter that information? Yeah. How come, you know, do you think that you can like have these ways where you can say, we do not deserve to be naming this many people in this category and not expect it to have really bad consequences in that person's life, completely unrelated to you and your goals and everything you're positioning here, right? Because their whole point of doing this, right, is they don't want restrictions in place, according to them. They don't want protections. They don't want anything to do with COVID. They don't want people to test for COVID. They don't want people to think about COVID. They want people to lie down, boot on their neck. (laughs) That is their goal. Their goal has to do with, like, ignoring a reality of disease. And they do not care what harm they do in the process. They don't care what damage they do to people's lives, whether that's delaying treatment, whether that's denying the validity of disease, whether that's denying someone community, or whether that's changing the way someone's community and family members and can relate to them because you make someone else believe that long COVID isn't real. Maybe someone's doctor validates them, but if the person they come home to doesn't validate them Mm -hmm. just as fucking bad, sometimes worse, Worse. right? Like the, 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 the kind of stakes here are so completely skewed. And the way that this is sort of framed is like, oh, this is merely like, we just have to have better standards of evidence. This is all about not about me or my judgments. This is a neutral uh, assertion, right? Of what quality evidence is Mm -hmm. and ultimately you know, it hides this huge ideological, political and moral uh, judgment that's being passed. And they're frankly encouraging people to pass it on other people in their day to day life. I will um, just paraphrase
3: again. Bruno Latour uh, when controversy <laughs> flares up. Debates become technical and i'm down to fucking clown you know what i mean with a, with a Fuck technical yeah. debate but this isn't even this isn't even a good version of that and um no. you know it's internally contradictory it contradicts things that Vinay prasad himself has said you know i've watched youtube videos where he says like oh no like and it's always you know i watched a study where he was uh, or a video where he was going through a study basically he liked the study because what it showed was people with long covid are crazy pretty much and in that instance he was fine with all the yeah. stuff that he's criticizing here, he was fine with self-report, you know? Like, he was fine with the definitions he of long COVID He talked at length about used.
0: how he was fine was with fine
3: self-report. With yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he's totally full of shit. And this, this document has the exact same, you know, it looks like a technical document if you are, like, a layperson or, you know, maybe you have expertise in something that isn't, like, public health or, you know, like, medical publishing or whatever. It looks really technical. But they're literally, they're just throwing technical shit at the walls to see what's going to stick to undermine like the status of long COVID as both a disease entity, as an object of study, and also as, uh, you know, like a a political entity, you know, like an entity that is, is politicized Mm -hmm. out in the real world that has like real, um, um, political stakes. And so, you know, I think that that's really, this document is just a a great example of this happening, you know, like where these really high stakes, questions about like, okay, well, what is long COVID? Like, how did we end up with so many people that have long COVID in the U S like, whoopsie doodle. You know what I mean? Like, did we maybe fuck up somehow (laughs) along the way? Like all of that, you know, instead of, instead of having like a, um, like a public debate of some kind, you know what I mean? Where we're talking about those questions, where we're engaging in like meaning making around those questions instead, you know, again, this document is, is just one example of that type of of that type of debate and that type of discourse getting displaced into this like esoteric, you know, like technical language. And that's really all it is, is technical language. Because I mean, the quality of technical language,
0: but not technical,
3: the quality of critical thinking, the quality of analysis behind this is nil. You know what I mean? Like nada, they're just using the, you know, they're just repeating shit that they learned in their RCT textbook in medical school, Um, like those, that terminology. But when you look at what, the, what the actual moving parts of the argument are and how they're actually proceeding through it. It's like, Oh no, this is an ideological hydra. You know what I mean? And they're just, they're just picking whatever they can that sounds technical and, and esoteric, you know, because that carries a lot of authority and cause that shuts a lot of people out of the conversation, but not on my fucking watch. you know. I, yeah.
0: I also, yeah, I think just to illustrate all of that. And I think it's important to, I, I liked that uh, Latour quote that you, brought in because I think it does help sort of name what's happening here. It has a like things like this. And this is the purpose of this document, right? Is to appear technical, to appear thoughtfully considered. And that's why it is important to kind of go through some of this and say like, no, like, look, really, this is in meaningful ways. There are many moments here where entire core parts of their argument appear to be just them throwing whatever they can at the wall Mm -hmm. and seeing what sticks. I will give a couple of examples here. Uh, One of the things (laughs) that they say is long COVID studies are skewed because people are recruiting people into long COVID studies. So Mm -hmm. they say, quote, study results may be biased towards poorer health outcomes if participants are recruited by advertising the study as pertaining to COVID nineteen recovery or long COVID, how the fuck else are, expe- are you
4: supposed to advertise the study? Like <laughs> that.
0: People who are experiencing lasting symptoms after COVID nineteen may be motivated to participate, potentially because they believe doing so may provide insight into their own condition or help others experiencing similar symptoms. Okay, wow, wait, how so terrible this
4: would is, that? Wait, be? No, 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 but
1: this, this is the biggest. This thing, is disease this is, ontology, yeah. Right, and this is the, this is a, a, allegedly the biggest type of secondary gain. Right is relief right that comes with an answer from a physician i mean how arrogant right yeah that that the biggest type of secondary gain is not monetary it's not social it is the interpersonal psychological relief of having a doctor validate you
4: yeah
3: that Mm -hmm. is what is at risk here right like it's fucking ridiculous Well, and it makes no sense like they're talking about um people's like subjective psychological experience and people's like <laughs> symptoms of, you know, as if they're like completely like different and like disagree It's like, OK, well, you may have had covid. You may be experiencing symptoms that are consistent with long covid. But if you see an ad for a study that's about, you know, like post covid conditions um, that could activate some irrational part of your brain, like of your psychology and make you think that you ought to sign up for this. Not knowing that you're gonna bias these estimates like in, you know, in an unbelievable way by and it's just like, wait a minute, what? Like, mm-hmm. wait, what like what are you again, this is what I'm talking if about. If I were going document.
0: to try and study long COVID in a deliberate and methodologically precise way, I would simply draw a roadrunner tunnel onto the side <laughs> of the
4: bridge. <laughs> and there you go. Make
0: sure that like I can get, you know, I'm sorry that we're not fucking catching people to like be studied in here by like putting a hunk of cheese on like a plate under a cardboard box or something like this is not anyway
1: if i were to study long covid i would merely re-enter plato's allegory of the cave in order to begin begin my approach your journey to understanding yeah, to understand the true contours of long COVID, one must re-enter the, the sort of primordial experience and get rid of all else, right? Like the kind of ridiculous, um, again, standards you would hold no other disease to, yeah. right? These are standards no other disease is held to.
0: I think another example of this throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks is actually something that was brought up earlier, which is the serology
4: mm, thing. Uh-huh.
0: Um, that's just like, I, I, I only just want to throw that out there before I kind of bridge to another uh, thing that I want to bring in. But I just think it's important just to note because they say essentially, you know, you need to have a confirmed test or you need to have everyone in the study do serology. And we know from and by serology, they mean like do a test to check that there has been You know, confirmed prior COVID infection. Yeah, to check your blood for
3: antigens or whatever. Right. Or antibodies. Which
0: which we know, we've seen like over the course of the last couple of years it's like that is not an ironclad way to know whether you've had covid mm-hmm. or not like there like there've been tons of reported problems with being able to be actually sure like whether serology like you know you can you can have had what i'm saying is you can absolutely have had covid before mm-hmm. and not have it show up on your serology like
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: very very simple like you can't just throw to that and say oh just do that and then you can bio certify that these people had covid like i'm sorry Anyway, another example of just kind of throwing things at the wall is something from a little bit earlier in the paper, but I wanted to make sure that we don't uh, just totally roll over it because I think it's rather important. Um, This falls in kind of this area where they're saying, essentially one of the ways that they want to limit it is they also want to say that you must have had like continuous symptoms. Like you have to have had a lab verified case of covid and then those symptoms to just continue and become long covid with no interruption mm-hmm. um ignoring the fact obviously that like you could have a previous case of covid that could maybe you know most of it could clear it could come back or you could like have most of it clear then you could have like another infection like a small infection later that does turn into long COVID but you don't have an acute phase of the you know what I mean like Mm -hmm. there's so many ways to be sick Mm
4: -hmm. that Mm -hmm. this
0: doesn't acknowledge and into this whole situation into this whole situation they throw this just ridiculous assertion that is based on nothing and that it fits with not like no one would ever tell you that this is like how disease, no no one thoughtful would ever tell you that this is like how disease must work. Uh, they say quote, and another important failing of the term long COVID uh, is that it connotes a permanent or long-term condition such as epilepsy after bacterial meningitis, for example. However, there is good evidence post-infectious symptoms after COVID-19 improve over time, even if some symptoms may take longer to improve than others. A couple things about that. First of all, uh, there are many people who have long COVID who say over and over again, my symptoms have not gotten any better and have only, in fact, sometimes gotten worse for a very long time. That is just Mm -hmm. that's like part of the landscape. And you're just completely contradicting. Yeah. That like you're clearly not paying attention or to the extent that you are paying attention. It doesn't matter because you're ideologically inclined to just run towards something that you maybe heard some other person say once Mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing I just want to note, like the this is part of the the thing that they're complaining about is also part of the utility of the term. I actually think long COVID is an incredible linguistic innovation that has come out of this pandemic Mm -hmm. because long COVID is... It's not as simple as to say it is what it says, but the long part is really important. It's the only
1: disease name that actually wrestles with like the temporal um, like unpredictability. And I think it's like a really important naming of also how it cannot be confined to clinical encounters either
0: right because even chronic could come off as like cyclical right exactly obviously some chronic disease is cyclical but i'm just but some some is constant or some is you know again there are many ways to be sick but to disagree with the term long covid because it connotes a permanent or long-term condition is in itself like what are we even doing here Mm -hmm. you know what i mean that that is what that is what we're talking about and i think of the many things that are you know, disqualifying of this overall opinion statement, that is one of the biggest because they are saying they're, they're essentially saying like, these people are just going to get better.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, don't worry about it. Just let it We might be. not have to study it. We might have to do anything about it. Just let it be,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Right. And, and what that is, 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 neglect, you know, ultimately they're encouraging neglect. They're, they're, uh, there's two ways, right? Really to, um, enforce this gatekeeping. One is to either establish a more solid basis of evidence, right? Like Prasad, oh, like they, you know, they could be doing studies attempting to establish what long COVID is, mm-hmm. right? That's that's one way to yeah. gatekeep long COVID. Another way is to pass the accountability to the patient.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Is to pass, you know, the responsibility for that illness talk, that illness behavior, and those perceived symptoms, not from the doctor or to any specialty, avoid, you know, attributing that to, you know, your individual pathology, your own personality, your mind, even, um, your social milieu, and then saying that you're seeking help and seeking care and seeking the advice of a doctor in and of itself is you attempting to transfer your responsibility back onto the doctor. So the doctor is only doing the the sensible thing and refusing that transfer. Like if there is any better claim for like the abolition of psychiatry, it's the misappropriation of like psychiatric concepts by other doctors. Right. (laughs) Like in some ways, this whole thing can also be seen as a contestation over which medical specialty gets dominion over long COVID. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is an assertion that long COVID, you know, uh, applies to the domain of psychiatry, Um, not to cardiology, not to rheumatology, not to um, neuroimmunology. Right. Like this is psychiatry, which is the the catch all um, bucket for for many unexplained diseases in centuries past. Right. And that's the thing that's so funny about the kind of invocation that we see here over and over that this is mass hysteria, because where does the idea of mass hysteria really kind of trace back to? Obviously, <laughs> there are a lot of, of like ideas about hysteria and and sort of social contagion that predate the Middle Ages. But one of the largest sort of moments where you see this concept coalesce is after the Black Death as a way to explain why certain social groups Uh, like particular religious sects, for example, experienced higher case rates, which is fascinating if you think about that then in the context of COVID. Yeah. Right. The idea of social contagion, right, was literally about why does the plague hit some religious fanatics all in one group and then doesn't hit one religious fanatic group. Right. And the assertion was that, well, maybe those people didn't actually have the plague, but they all caught on to the plague, and that existed in a context where, you know, that I, this is—I mean, I'm thinking, you know, even late plague, like 1600s, right? Like this is a this is a really important idea that also like begins to explain disease groups a, as medicine evolves after the plague, um, after the main years of the plague, let's say, because, you know. I think about that period uh, containment of the plague a very different way now that we've been living through COVID than I used to before COVID started. But like the, the the original context of of mass hysteria really is also about explaining away a pandemic, and that's kind of beautiful and frustrating and very tragic all at once. Personally, I mean when I. When you like sort of step back and look at what we've lived through the last couple of years, like for so many people, this has been a profound renegotiation of what health and medicine means, what the state means, what the purpose of any of all this is. And that is, you know, I think a difficult but ultimately good thing that we have all come to together. And part of that has occurred because we have seen people like Prasad so desperately lay out exactly how physician authority is constructed in ways like this, right? We've seen people tell on themselves as to the point of medical care when they say we have to restrict who can be in the patient group of long COVID because this is a financial issue. I mean, what more evidence do you need? right? Like there is no better time for the abolition of capitalism and to extract wealth transfer from health care. Like, <laughs> well, goddamn, sorry, just saying.
0: I mean, I think that's, you know, I think I, I imagine that we're coming towards the end here, but I would say that I think that for me is one of the things that makes this paper one of the most kind of explicitly eugenic things that I've read in a while. Because really, if you look at it, I mean, again, to return to this their, their main takeaways, right? Um, the un- quote, the unintended consequences of this, you know, mass diagnosis of long COVID may include, but are not limited to, quote, uh, increased social anxiety and increased healthcare spending. And two things about this, I guess. One, this just reminds me of, this is a, yet another one of those instances where part of the ideological appeal that they're trying to do here. Is the thing that is so laughable whenever you see it in any form because they are appealing to the idea of national health expenditure as though people just sit around and worry, oh my, my goodness, like how big is our national health expenditure growing? Maybe the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal sits around and like worries about that, but they do that. They mostly purport to do that and they mostly focus on on that when they you know choose to write about things like that because like they are using it for ideological purposes to say like we can't have nice things we can't you know have <laughs> a have a, a broad better functioning social net um at a minimum mm-hmm. not not to mention any of the other much bigger structural changes or complete reformations that we may want but then on top of it it's this okay who does tying it to health spending and social contagion mass hysteria serve right Who does it really serve to be a malingerer hunter, right? As they're basically purporting to do. Mm -hmm. They're essentially saying, we need more rigid... you know basically from their perspective it's like oh yeah they could go out and individually try and police like oh no no no, that's that's not a long covid patient that's a long covid patient but that's not a long covid patient or whatever but more effective is to obviously go through and empower people to be malingerer hunters to say like oh this person doesn't have long covid they're just trying to like get out of work they're trying to get access to some social safety net support that doesn't actually exist but that is imagined to exist or something Mm -hmm. right um Who does that serve, though, to do to be providing that role of the to be the malingerer hunter? It obviously only just serves capital, which I think is the most ironic thing about all of this, because like Prasad is Mm -hmm. this guy who fucking bloviates on his YouTube channel all the time about how not just the COVID vaccines, but like specifically the role of like big companies like Pfizer and Moderna or whatever are engaged in a quote universal campaign to medicalize all of society Mm -hmm. and he like situates this analysis in this very like if you took like ad busters or something (laughs) and then just made it a little reactionary or something you took ad busters made it like a little bit more like a matt taibbi production or something and then like put it on the internet you know that's like the the kind of uh, Vinay Prasad sort of pretending to fight for the working class kind of shtick <laughs> bullshit that he does. And it's so ironic again, yep. you know, to return mm-hmm. to this, it's so ironic because like at the end of the day, what is he saying? Uh, we need to <laughs> curtail people's ability to access the sick role. We need to curtail people's ability to seek and find diagnosis ultimately, not just now, but in the future, especially in the future for long COVID, when as the you know, pandemic continues, in order to limit the pool of people who are sick and limit the pool of people who then can like identify collectively as people with long COVID who could make political demands. I mean, God it's, forbid. It's the most like simping for capital bullshit in the world to try and limit this population not -hmm. to mention obviously that it's like leaving out the things that you could do that are more important with regards to this population like advocating for there being actual social supports Mm -hmm. for them Mm -hmm. um
1: i feel like the thing that that's just so fucking frustrating to me at at the end of all this is is you know the way they close the piece right um quote ultimately biomedicine must seek to aid all people who are suffering In order to do so, the best scientific methods and analyses must be applied. Inappropriate definitions and flawed methods do not serve those whom medicine seeks to help. Improving standards of evidence generation is the ideal method to take long COVID seriously, improve outcomes, and avoid the risks of misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment. What I, and who what is to say? Well, one, what treatment? And who is to say we can get there without doing the research, albeit right. flawed, in your exactly. opinion, that we're doing now? Are you really saying halt, y'all? Let really the good is. be the enemy of the perfect. We better <laughs> tell everybody with long COVID to sit down and shut the fuck up. I mean, that is what you're saying. He here. is.
3: He is because in his mind, there is a discrete, measurable, separate entity out there in the world called long COVID that exists independently of long COVID being collectively socially constructed and understood, you know what I mean, as a, as yeah. a diagnostic category. And I think you're totally right. I mean, like, if we're going to learn anything at all, we have to do this research. And some of it's flawed, but that's why, I mean, a lot of people do it. You know, that's why you do... Things that are not this, um, not this article, but that's why you do things like systematic reviews. You know, you can survey a bunch of so-so studies and see, you know, what you can find from them. Like there's there is there is value in doing research that's not methodologically perfect because almost none of it can be.
4: Um, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and then on top of it, just I think the maybe just as the last thing, um, this was mentioned earlier, but I just want to kind of reiterate it uh, as we close out you know, we started this off by talking about how this paper is asserting that reports of the prevalence of long COVID are overblown. We need to chill out about it. People are getting worked, like too worked up about it. They're like self-diagnosing the, themselves or, or whatever. But, but the core of it, the core of their argument is reports of the prevalence of long COVID are overblown. A claim which, as we're saying, is never proven, but also a claim that if this is the question that they are purporting to bring in order to go from there to all of these other sort of distant points of we need to, you know, limit diagnostic criteria, we need to do this and that we need to be really careful for the the purse strings of our national health expenditure, you know, mm-hmm. for those purposes, if that's what they're getting to, they are beginning Obviously, from very much the wrong question, because they are saying, is long COVID as prevalent as claimed, or is it simply a sort of mass hysteria, social contagion? And what that completely ignores, this is the part that I just wanted to like really underscore and, and, and sort of repeat from before. What that completely ignores is the fact that, first of all, yes, there are a lot of people with long COVID. Why are there a lot of people with long COVID? The answer is not, as they assert here, mass psychological, like a mass psychological event or something that has like convinced a bunch of people that they have long COVID when they maybe have nothing or maybe have something else. The reason that a lot of people have long COVID is because of the fucking disaster of a pandemic response that we have had not only in the United States, but in the world internationally. The reason that there are so many people with long COVID is because so many people have gotten infected with COVID and reinfected with COVID and reinfected again and over and over again. That just statistically speaking, because long COVID tends to be one of the byproducts of a COVID infection, there are a fucking lot of people with long COVID. Mm -hmm. So like this is not something that arrived and has become so prevalent because it's a fad. Mm -hmm. This is something that has arrived and has become so prevalent because it is prevalent. Yes. And that is so Mm self-evident.
1: No, I mean, honestly, the thing that I keep thinking about also is, and I just kind of want to leave us with this today is that ultimately like what we've been talking about is about the process of how <laughs> meaning is made in a clinical setting and a research setting and how it is never contained to that setting right the the clinical meaning the the scientific meaning of something it's never bound in these clinical encounters like what happens to a patient before they walk into a doctor's office is often so rarely taken into account How could you even possibly, as a doctor, assert that, you know, for example, that someone's anxiety is uh, productive of symptoms, quote unquote, or as the result of experiencing those symptoms? And part of what like I would love for us to sort of question moving forward, like when we start thinking about, you know, medicine and oppression is, again, what is sort of the site of struggle here? Who does this serve? What does this serve? Right. And ultimately, you know, what he's claim, what these researchers are claiming, what these doctors are claiming is that, you know, folks with long COVID also have power that they don't. Right. And they have too much and that that's dangerous. And they're fundamentally fucking wrong mm-hmm. about that. Um, and the existence of something being medically unexplained right especially so soon yep into our encounter with the disease itself should surprise no one Mm -hmm. right like we haven't gotten to the point where we have this knowledge yet so to claim that the knowledge is imperfect and therefore should not exist right what you know yeah like let's look at things for what they are let's look at what they're actually saying here you know it's there's a great like Heidegger essay where he's responding to the WHO's like first report on psychosomatic illness, and he says, like, no wonder doctors can't understand the phenomenon of the body because physicians are concerned with the body only as like a corporeal thing, right? And so such we like subject the body to these systems and all of these, you know, attempts to standardize something that... Is unnameable, unstandardizable, and not reproducible in the ways that we talk about it in the terms of science and in the terms of medicine, right? And that doesn't make any one way more true or less true, but it does mean that, like, if we were to get rid of one way and not the other, right? If the only way we're gonna think about long COVID is that we need to limit it, right? What a tremendous lack of curiosity about the world and what a tremendous arrogance that we would be leading with to say that we think we know what people have been experiencing definitively. We can say that their experiences are invalid, like, fuck you. That's one of the most arrogant assertions I have ever encountered. And that's fundamentally what's at the core of this really fucking bad op-ed being touted as definitive evidence here.
3: Yep. (laughs) That's great.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think that's probably a good place to leave it for today,
3: yep. We have I a whole
1: so. you know, we could do a whole other two hours about, like what anxiety actually is. I if we wanted to go there.
0: <laughs> I personally am looking forward to not having to talk about Vinay Prasad anymore and not having to think about him until the next thing.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. Patrons. Again, thank you so so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or pre-order Jules' new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. We'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.